News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's get an update now on the developing situation between Ukraine and Russia that is pulling in countries in the surrounding area as well. For instance, some of the Baltic countries like Latvia. That is where we find Mercedes Stevenson this morning, and she joins us now to talk about the situation. Hello, Mercedes. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. First of all, you're in Latvia. Why is that? What is the situation there? So I'm in Latvia because there's actually 540 Canadian troops here, um, and they've been here since 2017 as part of a NATO deterrence force against Russian aggression. Um, NATO Baltic countries are very worried that Vladimir Putin may have him in their sights, and they have been for some time, uh, and they are even more concerned now after what is happening in Ukraine. So Canada is actually going to be sending another 120 soldiers here. That's an artillery bat- battery, pardon me, uh, with M777 howitzers. Those are big artillery artillery guns that have like a 30 kilometer range on them. And they're also going to be adding some electronic warfare folks. There's 300 American soldiers that have come into the country in the past few days. Uh, And when you understand the relative size of Latvia, you understand how many soldiers this is. This is a population of less than 2 million in the whole country. Um, So it is small and it is geographically kind of pinchered by Russia and Belarus. Uh, So it has severe concerns about that because two of the border and I've I've visited both of them, are with countries that are attacking Ukraine now. Uh, And I actually spoke to the president of Latvia yesterday, and he told me he no longer considers Belarus to even be its own country. He says it's just basically a client of Moscow now and an extension of it. So they essentially consider all those borders to effectively be borders with Russia at this point. What is the mood like in Latvia then? Sounds like it's fairly nervous. It's, I would say it's defiant. It's worried. It's emotional, it's tense, but it's also very strong. Um, we have had people come up when they find out we're Canadian and say, thank you for sending your troops here, uh, because they fear that if it were not for, in particular, North American NATO troops, that Putin might be more emboldened. Uh, the response that would trigger to A, come into a NATO country, but B, come into a NATO country that has Canadian and American troops in it, is very different than the situation with Ukraine. Uh, Latvia, though, is also an interesting place because it is not cut and dried with the opinions. There are regional differences and there are age differences, which is one of the things that we've considered, pardon me, get discovered as, as we've been traveling around. So, for example, there are ethnic Latvians in Latvia. There are also ethnic Russians. Amongst the ethnic Russians who we spoke to, there was a significant divide, and, and they all shared the same opinion with us, that this is less of a divide between ethnic Latvians and ethnic Russians than older ethnic Russians and younger ethnic Russians. The younger ethnic Russians are very upset about the war. They're very concerned and they're condemning what Putin is doing. The older ethnic Russians say that the regions they were in and one woman we spoke to said, you know, things were were better when we were a part of Russia here. I think that this is not just up to Vladimir Putin. I think Ukraine provoked it. Uh, So there are differences of opinion here. I wouldn't want to paint it all with one brush, Mm -hmm. but certainly the majority of the population um, is, is, is very concerned and that cross ethnic lines. Uh, But it is a complex place and it is a place with an imperial history. So all of that kind of feeds in and informs these different layers of public opinion here and how people are feeling. Now you had a chance also to sit down with the president of Latvia. That interview is going to air on the West Block this weekend. What was that like? What did he have to say? 
as such an interesting man. Um, it's the president in Latvia is not quite our governor general because he is political, but he's sort of a statesman, right? Uh, he's less of a partisan. And he said that he does not believe there's an immediate term threat to Latvia, but there could be a middle or long term one. And he thinks that it is time for NATO to adapt. He says that NATO was formed to deter Russian aggression. It now has to realize that that Russian aggression is actually happening. Um, he wants Ukraine to eventually become a part of NATO, not right away, because he just doesn't think that's on the table at the moment. Uh, but he also wants Ukraine to become a part of the EU immediately and symbolically. And that symbolism is something we talked about because he says democracies must view the attack on Ukraine as an attack on all democracies, that it's an attack on beliefs and values about how people live. Um, and he was very strong on that, which was interesting. I asked him because a lot of people have been saying, oh, maybe Vladimir Putin's crazy. What's he up to? Um, the Latvians have a lot of intelligence on this stuff. And he said, look, I'm no psychiatrist, was his quote. So I can't get, you know, weigh in on that. But he, he believes that Putin is rational. Uh, and he believes as a result of that, the, the threats about a possible nuclear option are unlikely because what he said to me is that Vladimir Putin is not suicidal. Hmm, it's so interesting there. Okay, so it does sound very tense. Has that is there spillover about that? Is there is there I guess a sense of solidarity with the other Baltic countries in Latvia? Absolutely. Um a sense of solidarity and uh, a, a sense of the West having to act together and, and definitely a desire, by the way, for Western leaders to come here. Uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is going to be making a visit uh, early next week. And I think you're going to see a lot of Western leaders starting to come here to, to bring comfort to the populations, but also to send a clear signal to Russia that these are NATO countries uh, and would trigger a NATO response if they were invaded under Article 5, which would trigger an attack on one as an attack on all. Um, but it's it's very interesting to watch. And, you know, speaking to the Russian population here and and Russians who are here as well was was very interesting too because it's a difficult time for them Mm -hmm. Uh, and I spoke to one truck driver at the Russian border who was about to cross back over a young man and and he'll be in my global national piece that's coming up he says he's afraid he's going to be drafted he wants to be able to just continue to drive his truck between Riga, Latvia and Moscow, uh, picking up loads of things like frozen French fries. And he says the reality is for somebody like him now, he could be drafted and dragged into a war that he doesn't believe in. And on the other side, he's also taking harassment, he says, as he drives to the Baltic countries when people see the Russian license plate. Uh, so there's all kinds of complexity to this here. But I just thought talking to him was very yeah. interesting as one of the Russians we've met here. Um, and, uh, you know, just the basic complications for his life. He says he can't, he can't buy iTunes anymore now to listen to in his car because that's been cut off. So that's sort of rubber hitting the road of reality for the average person uh, and the average Russian who's being affected. Oh man, that is tough. Uh, Mercedes, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, host of the West Block, currently in Latvia and reporting on the Ukraine situation and the impact it's having there. Uh, Keep watching Global National and check out globalnews.ca for more on... This is Mornings with Simi. Do you have a well on your property? I mean, did you know that any business that has a well or uses groundwater in this province has to file an application for it? And oh, the deadline for that was three days ago. As of March 1st, though, there were still thousands of BC businesses who hadn't done that. So what is this all about? Well, joining us now is Ben Parfit, policy analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Ben, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me on, Simi. Now, can you explain this? This is a 2016 law, right, that was put into place? 
That's right, uh, Simi. In, in 2016, uh, the Water Sustainability Act became law in British Columbia. And at that point in time, uh, set in process uh, a uh, uh, system whereby uh, people that were using well water, and I have to be very clear, businesses that were using well water would have to apply uh, to the provincial government for a license. Prior to that point in time, uh, users of well water or groundwater uh, had not had to have licenses, but the new law correctly uh, made it a requirement that people that were using well water, like people that were using water from rivers, lakes, and streams, would have to play by the same set of rules. And the government gave uh, businesses, roughly 20,000 of them, three years uh, to apply for those licenses. But the uptake uh, in applications was uh, glacially slow. And after the three-year period, with only, you know, several hundred to maybe a thousand uh, applicants uh, in the queue, the government made the decision to extend the deadline once again for another three years. And it is that deadline uh, that expired on March 1st. Um, myself and uh, two uh, former senior ranking officials in the Ministry of Environment uh, wrote a piece in which uh, we recently urged the government to um, extend the deadline yet again because of the very slow uptake. Uh, it's our understanding now that about 7,000 of an estimated uh, 20,000 um, businesses are in the queue, which means roughly two-thirds of all businesses that rely on groundwater for their operations um, are effectively breaking the law. Okay, so why is it an education issue? Is it that these businesses don't know that they're supposed to do this? Like, Ben, why do you think there has been such little uptake on this? Well, I think the major problem rests with the government and in particular with the uh, assistant deputy ministers and deputy ministers that ultimately are in charge of implementing policy. It does not look like the government uh, over six years has really taken seriously um, their uh, job of communicating uh, to businesses that this is a requirement. Um, there are many uh, businesses, I think, that are still unaware uh, that they will be in a position where they are now breaking the law. Um, many more, I think, felt that the process for applying for these licenses was onerous and that they didn't have the time to do it. And there are probably others that felt that they simply weren't going to do it because they didn't feel they needed to comply with the right. law. I was just going to say, I remember when the Water Sustainability Act was even being considered, when it was brought in, it was a pretty big deal because there are all these questions about people taking water, companies taking water. Uh, so it was like a big overhaul of the laws at the time. So there was a lot of, I think, publicity about it back in 2016. So why then isn't the government more committed to saying, hey, we have to do this, like we have to let everybody know these are the rules? Well, I think that that is an, a, a very, very good question, because what we now have is a government that is caught in a real bind. Uh, what is it going to do? Is it going to enforce the law uh, and effectively go after, uh, you know, 13,000 uh, businesses that are now in a position where they are illegally using water? Or um, are they going to not enforce the rules? Uh, and, and both options are, are really, really um, uh, unpalatable. 
um, because if the government doesn't enforce the rules, it means that a number of businesses, roughly 7,000, uh, that have done the right thing and applied for the licenses um, are, are effectively um, doing what they should be doing, while 13,000 are not. Um, and that creates a very, very difficult situation, particularly um, you know, in light of things like climate change. Uh, we know that we are experiencing more uh, droughts in this province. We know that there are increased demands on water and stresses on water. Uh, and to allow for a system that effectively has one group of players that are playing by the rules and another group that is not is is extremely difficult. I seem to remember that one of the, the the one of the reasons why this was brought in was because there was all the concern and controversy over giant multinational companies, um, you know, being able to bottle sell bottled water that they pretty much got for free here in BC. Like we had reasons for wanting this. Um, that is for sure, um, and I think the focus on on companies that were were using groundwater to bottle, um, you know, was uh, something that really caught the, the uh, imagination of people. Right, that there needed to be um, a better uh, accounting for the water that was being used, and uh, a better system for ensuring that companies that used water paid at least a nominal fee for that water in recognition of the fact that it is a publicly owned resource. So that was very much in the public's mind at the time that this uh, uh, law changed. Bear in mind that there are other industries that are using phenomenally more water than the bottled water uh, industry does. I mean, uh, one fracking operation alone in this province, natural gas fracking operation, would be using uh, several times more water than um, one bottled water company would use in a year. So there's a very, very good um, reason for the government making the very important decision in 2016 that it was effectively going to regulate all water use as the same. Whether you were a well water user or a surface water user, you were going to have to effectively comply by the same set of rules. Uh, so what we have now is, you know, baby steps towards getting where we need to be and big, big questions about what the government is going to do uh, by either enforcing the law and facing the consequences of that or ignoring the law and facing the consequences of right. that. And we're talking two different governments here, two different political parties in this process. Um, now, I noticed as well, Ben, a week ago, government rearranged things. There's a new Ministry of Land, Water and Resource Stewardship. Does that change anything here? It, it absolutely changes nothing, which is, is, is something that is, is even more to be concerned about. Um, incredibly, you know, we now have a ministry with, with the word water in its title, um, but effectively that ministry has no control uh, over the uh, uh, review of license applications or the issuance of new licenses. Those responsibilities remain with the Ministry of Forest, Lands and Natural Resource Operations, uh, which has had that power um, all through this process. So effectively, what we have now with the creation of a new ministry um, may arguably be worse than what we had before, because effectively, we have three ministries that have some jurisdiction over issues relating to water. We have the Forest Ministry, the Environment Ministry, and now this new ministry. Uh, so again, um, government you know, is signaling that water is a priority, but uh, on the ground in terms of increasing budgets in terms of, you know, giving uh, the ministries 
very clear instructions that they mm-hmm. need to get this job done. We're not seeing that, and it's not reflected in any of the mandate letters of, of the three ministries that I just mentioned. Wow, Ben, listen, thanks for joining us this morning. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Such an interesting topic. Ben Parfit is a policy analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, talking about the deadline for companies in BC to say, hey, we use groundwater in this province and to apply so that the government knows that. And thousands upon thousands of them still haven't done it. This is Mornings with Simi. And in some situations, past the $2 a liter mark. It is jarring. And it's also been whiplash when you consider how quickly that happened just in the last two weeks. Uh, just absolute upwards descent into the $2 plus stratosphere. So what's going to be done about it? That's the question we've been asking you this morning. What do you think should be done about it? We thought we would ask that question of our next guest, Bruce Ralston, BC's Minister of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation and Minister Responsible for the Consular Corps. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Simi. Great to be on your show. You must be frustrated as well. You must be hearing this from a lot of people about what's going on with gas prices. Yeah, it's uh, it's a huge problem for, for many people. In fact, I can't think of anyone who's uh, welcoming it, maybe other than the oil companies themselves. Uh, but it's a problem across North America uh, and uh, and Europe. Uh, the the invasion of Ukraine, uh, an attack on a sovereign country, uh, has uh, completely overturned the normal patterns of the world energy market, and uh, and we're all dealing with the consequences. Okay, so how are we going to deal with those? Though it's very unaffordable for a lot of people out there. What, if anything, can the government do? Well, what. Uh, Within the within provincial jurisdiction, uh, we, we don't set the world price, but when uh, fuel comes to British Columbia, uh, there are some tools that we have. We brought in uh, the uh, Fuel Price Transparency Act, which is uh, uh, an effort using our energy watchdog, the BC Utilities Commission, to force companies to uh, to explain uh, what the markup is. Uh, there are legitimate markups uh, as you buy on the world market. But what we what we're concerned about is companies and retailers not use this uh, rise in world price as an opportunity to add a further gouge uh, on their own on their own behalf. So so that's uh, that's what the Utilities Commission is uh, looking at and has some powers uh, to to look at. What they did discover in a report they did a year and a half ago is that uh, the uh, the market for diesel and gasoline in British Columbia is uh, oligopoly priced, which is a, a fancy word for saying that uh, it's not uh, entirely a free market price. It's uh, there's uh, evidence uh, in their in their view of uh, unexplained increases that can only be in, uh, explained by uh, the power of the companies to set the prices. Okay, but that's great that we have all those mechanisms, but what good are those mechanisms if we can't use them to get some relief at the pump? Uh, well, the, the, uh, the Utilities Commission is coming out with a report. They, they had to have a, because, uh, and the BC Liberals uh, really opposed this, uh, the, the oil companies are concerned about revealing uh, some of the behind-the-curtain way in which prices are set. So they had to have a hearing to decide and, and uh, before the Utilities Commission and give themselves the power to do that. They're working on that, and I expect a report uh, from 
Utilities Commission fairly shortly. Um, what, what, what they can do um, is, uh, I think, publicize, um, uh, shame the companies, uh, perhaps, uh, if they are not following uh, the, uh, the, the rules in the sense that they're not, uh, they're, they're interfering with the uh, operation of, of the market. Um, minister Champagne, the federal minister, uh, they have the, the Competition Bureau under their control, and what he has said that if there is uh, illegal or anti-competitive behavior, the Federal Competition Bureau will also be intervening. Uh, he he's given that uh, statement publicly uh, a little bit earlier this week. So there are there are some mechanisms to deal with the, the local impact of high world prices, and uh, that's what we're working on. Okay, but will the province ask the federal government for help in relief with, say, the carbon tax? Uh, the, uh, the the carbon tax is uh, part of a, a broad program of uh, climate action, uh, which, as government, we're part of, and which which the federal government is part of. Um, and uh, the what what the experts who comment on this stuff, I'm thinking of Werner Antweiler out at UBC have said that if you, if you take away the, the, the tax increase, the, the companies will simply fill that in and take that money. And a good example is uh, in Squamish. Um, Squamish is north of the lines uh, of uh, separating uh, the regional, the GVRD, the Greater Vancouver Regional District, from uh, the area north of it. And so the, the, uh, one of the taxes, the uh, TransLink tax, applies in West Vancouver, uh, but it doesn't apply in Squamish. But what people in Squamish will tell you is that the price at the pump in Squamish is even a little bit higher than it is in West Vancouver because the companies have rushed in and scooped that difference for themselves. They haven't passed on the absence of a tax to, uh, to motorists uh, in Squamish. Okay, so, the Minister so Ralston, that, that a, seems like a clear-cut example of a problem. Why can't the government do something about that? Uh, well, the uh, the Utilities Commission, uh, as I've said, is uh, is working on that. They publicized that uh, that uh, situation, uh, and uh, the opportunity to to act is something that we're awaiting the, the advice of the Utilities Commission on. But um, we, what, what, as a government, uh, we don't have it. We wouldn't take. We won't take this as an opportunity to set prices. We're not going to intervene in the market and set prices, because that brings other complications. If you set the price uh, at, a, at, a, at a price that uh, the, the companies can't make money, you'll create a shortage and you'll drive the price up even higher. So, so it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a challenging situation that governments across North America are facing in the, in the context of the war on, the, on Ukraine. Minister Ralston, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate that, Bruce Ralston, BC Minister of Energy, Mines, and Low Carbon Innovation. Frustrating, I know, because what we really want to hear is that somebody's going to do something. But it doesn't sound like anybody is going to do anything, and all we're going to do is pay more at the pump. This is Mornings with Simi. If you're wondering this weekend, what are all these people doing downtown with these shoes, these very nice shoes? Well, it's because they are heading to the Vancouver Convention Centre 
thousands of people are expected to check this out. It is the second sneaker con going on in Vancouver. We are talking an event that drew something like 10,000 people the first time it was held here two years ago. COVID cancelled it last year. This year it is back. eBay is the title sponsor and it is a very big deal. But you may wonder, what is this obsession that some people have with sneakers? And why are they willing to pay so much money for some of them? Our producer, Jason Manoa, dove into... Did I call him Manoa? I meant Manoa's, of course. (laughs) Dove into the world of sneakers ahead of this year's sneaker con. I mean, seriously, how often do you really look at a man's shoes? Wait, what? So why will there be thousands of people crowding the Vancouver Convention Center this Saturday for an event called SneakerCon? Why is it that in today's day and age, we have sneakers worth thousands of dollars and people actually willing to spend that money? Well, what started as shoes that were meant for athletics became the sneaker. And if you look around, you may notice more people opting for the comfortable athletic shoe rather than the plain old boring dress shoe. That's because sneakers have continued to grow more in popularity due to its link to several cultures and how unique they can be. Sneakerheads, what sneaker enthusiasts call themselves, believe sneakers aren't just a silhouette you throw on randomly. For some, it's about the love for one of the greatest basketball players of all time. On September 15th, Nike created a revolutionary new basketball shoe. On October 18th, the NBA threw them out of the game. Fortunately, the NBA can't stop you from wearing them. Air Jordans from Nike. Sharina Draws, head of sneakers for eBay Canada, has been collecting sneakers for over 20 years. And what started it all was the legend of Michael Jordan. You know, the Jordan brand, him playing basketball during that time. And then it really just, you know, basketball and and sneaker culture just kind of transferred itself into, you know, hip hop and 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 then to movies. So, you know, all of the things that I love kind of all come back into sneakers and it just lays the foundation really for everything in that I love in my life. But how does one build a career from loving shoes? Dream job. I could never have imagined a head of sneakers as an opportunity when I was growing up, but um, definitely a dream job. And yeah, my passion has definitely led me to this career. And I feel very lucky that every day I get to talk about sneakers and I get to look at sneakers. Like I would have done that anyways. Others have a more complex reason. Producer of the Shift radio show and sneakerhead Ryan O'Donnell collects sneakers as a means of expression. I, you know, express myself through drama, theater, performance. And then when I got older, my opportunities to do that lessened. And I kind of was in this runt of like, how do I show who I am to people? And then uh, my girlfriend at the time was working at Vans and she started, you know, pushing me towards wearing some cool Van shoes. And it, it started to click that, wait a minute, you know, it, shoes can be an act of expression. And I got a pair of Air Max 97s. I put them on and that was it when it all clicked there. there. There's a really strong sense of community for one. It's really cool to see people, you know, saying, Hey, you look amazing. That looks fantastic on you. Or those shoes look great. Like a sense of community and appreciation for what I would consider to be art. Rarity and collectability is what determines a sneaker's resale price, a price that an avid collector like Ryan is willing to pay for some of his favorites. Technically, the most amount I've ever dropped on a pair of shoe were the Adidas Towley K 
campus sneakers and the value was absurd. I failed to get them on launch. I had to get them. I will admit I paid $600 for them, which was a lot. Like all things though, the community and culture can come with some negatives. Females in sneakers, you know, I'm not blind that there are, you know, some disparities here and that they're not as many, you know, maybe women in a leadership role or in sneakers. Um, but there are a few things that I do know. I knew, I do know that, you know, for me, there's definitely limited sizes for women. And, you know, that gives us a feeling of exclusion, which isn't a great feeling. I think there are some negative things about it. And I think there's way too much money and there are people that take advantage of each other within it. However, as more people become interested, having a way to prevent the fake market and making sure women have just as much exposure in the community is a priority for eBay's head of sneakers. For myself, I I'm, I really love the fact that, you know, at eBay, we also authenticate pre-owned sneakers and not only the new ones. So for us, too, I think that there's a really great opportunity for pre-owned for buyers and sellers to get their hands on some really great inventory that they may not have uh, thought to get. I do know that there are incredible female talent here in Canada and abroad in the sneakers community. And I just think that we need to bring them to the forefront. And luckily, we have social media for that. But you may be asking, how does one get into collecting in such a wide market? Shireen's advice, don't focus on the hype. Get what you like. Honestly, just start and and find what you like. You don't you don't need to you know really jump on the hype train if you don't want to. You you know stay in your lane and and find things that speak to you or or that have the stories that maybe mean something to you or just colors that maybe you like or a silhouette that you like. So when does a person look at someone else's shoes? Look down sometimes when you're taking a stroll, and you may just find out. For nine eighty CKNW, I'm Jason Manalis. That is SneakerCon coming up this weekend at the Vancouver Convention Center. This is Mornings with Simi. Here's a question for you. If you could put your beloved pet, your best friend, your dog on medication that would extend your dog's life, maybe by up to a third, would you do it? Well, there's research that's actually going on into the potential for making this happen. You may actually soon be able to do it. Let's talk more about that research. Joining us now is Matt Caberlin, who's a professor at the University of Washington. Matt, thanks for being here. Sure, thank you. What about this research? Tell me about it. Yeah, so this this really stems from work that has happened over the last 10 or 15 years in laboratory animals, um, particularly in laboratory mice, where we and others have found that if you treat these animals with a drug called rapamycin, you can, in fact, increase their lifespan by up to about 30%. So like you said, about a third. But I think more importantly, not only do they live longer, but they're protected from a variety of age-related functional declines and diseases. And we think this is because this drug is actually targeting the, the biology of aging or the, the mechanisms that actually cause animals to go from being young and healthy to, to old and suffering from chronic disability and disease. So the question that we're trying to answer in this study is whether or not the same mechanisms, the same intervention um, could have a similar impact in companion animals and maybe someday in people. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. If it works for animals, can it work for us? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and in, in fact, there's a little bit of data already suggesting this. So there were a couple of clinical trials done um, between about 2014 and 2019 in healthy elderly people with a derivative of, of rapamycin it's called Everolimus that suggested that just like in mice, older people with a short six-week treatment period with this drug actually show 
uh, a rejuvenation of immune function, a better response to a flu vaccine. Um, so, yeah, I think, it's, you know, we obviously have to do the clinical trials, but there's reason to be optimistic that indeed, you know, it could work the same way in people. And, and I think the fact that, that what we've learned is that the, the underlying biology of aging seems to be shared pretty much across all animals gives us a lot, of, a lot of confidence that, in fact, it's likely that the same things that would work in a laboratory mouse, at least to some extent, will mm-hmm. work in people. Matt, can you give us an idea in as simplest terms as possible, what is the kind of mechanism going on here that might make this possible? Sure. So, so let me just take a real quick step back. And I think, I think the first thing to do is, is to, to try to, to really emphasize that this idea of biological aging. So we're all sort of familiar with the idea that one human year is about equal to seven dog years. And really all that means is that dogs age about seven times faster than people do. So there is a biology there that causes dogs to age about seven times faster than people do. And we're really trying to understand that. Now, in terms of the mechanisms, as you might imagine, it's complicated. Um, but, but one of the things that's emerged over the last 15 years or so is that we can actually put these mechanisms into distinct categories, which some people call the hallmarks of aging. And those include things like mitochondrial dysfunction, cellular senescence, an increase in chronic inflammation that goes along with aging. So there are about nine of these things that we can point to that are specific, highly shared mechanisms across all animals. And in principle, any or all of those are targets that we can, we can treat with interventions. And those could be lifestyle interventions like exercise or a good diet, or they could be drugs like rapamycin. Okay, so when you say potentially down the line this could work, how, how potentially down the line? How far away? Yeah, so I, I think so in our particular clinical trial, this is our this is our third and largest clinical trial in dogs. The first two were safety studies. We should know the answer in four years. So we're enrolling now. It's a three year trial. We should know the answer in four years in dogs. And and in that intervening time period, there will be smaller clinical trials in people. Now I think it's important to appreciate you can't do a lifespan study in people, right? So in our trial, lifespan is the primary endpoint. We're looking at a variety of other age related functional measures. In people, you can't do that because people live so long. So you have to look at other endpoints. And, and there are two that I know about I'm pretty excited about. One is here at the University of Washington, Jonathan Ahn, who's a, a professor in oral health sciences, will be doing a clinical trial this year with rapamycin for reversal of periodontal disease. And that's because we have seen that we can reverse periodontal disease in mice with rapamycin. And then there will also be a trial at Columbia looking at the ability of rapamycin to delay or reverse early ovarian failure in women. Again, because the data in mice suggests that that's, that's one of the aging uh, benefits that mice can get from rapamycin. So I think we'll right. see, you know, we'll find out over the next few years whether it seems to be working the same way in people as it does in mice. You know, just the idea, though, that if you could extend your beloved pets, like companion pets, life by a few years, Matt, do you realize how many people would pay big money for that? I, I do, and and you know, I'm I'm an I'm an academic at heart. We're not we're not selling rapamycin or anything. I certainly, it, for me, it's more it's more important that the impact that it will have on the quality of life, both both for the people and and the companion animals. And I'm a dog guy. I've had dogs all my life. I have a a German shepherd named Dobby who's 11, and I love him dearly. Aww. So I absolutely get the the impact that this will have if we can give people more quality time with their companion animal. And I think it's important to appreciate more than half of people with pets consider their pet to be part of their family. And so if we can have a positive impact on the quality and length of life for a family member, 
that's a big deal. So I absolutely get that part of it. Yeah, there's a reason why we say pet children for a reason, right? That's right, absolutely. <laughs> but this is very promising. So as you were pointing out, there's a number of different institutions doing this kind of research. It sounds like it's really on the forefront of something here. Yeah, I think we are on the cusp of, of really um, making a breakthrough, both in terms of the the recognition sort of more broadly speaking among the general public that there is this biology of aging and that it is something that can be modified. And then scientifically, we have several, rapamycin, I would say, is the best bet at this point, but there are several um, additional interventions or mechanisms that people are studying that I think, you know, will potentially have an even bigger impact than rapamycin in the coming years. And so, yeah, it's a really exciting time. You know, in some ways it's frustrating because these trials, you know, they take years, but um, right. but it's exciting to kind of feel like we're really on the cusp of actually having an impact. Yeah, it's the excitement of that potential, that possibility there. Matt, thank you so much. Sure, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. That was so interesting. That's Matt Caberlein, who's a professor at the University of Washington, talking about this drug called rapamycin that has, sounds like, so much potential, potentially for extending your dog's life by up to a third, maybe even helping out in humans too.